Welcome to The Growth Show with Matt Lindsay, where we discuss growth strategies both for business and a personal perspective, discussing all kinds of businesses, growth strategies, technology, investment strategy, and much more. We are meeting with entrepreneurs, investors, app developers, and property developers. Our vision is to help 10,000 business owners grow their businesses. Introducing our host, Matt Lindsay. Matt is a former banker and corporate financier. He now spends his time building his own companies organically and through acquisition, as well as raising capital for other businesses. Matt works with a wide variety of entrepreneurs and investors. Good morning and welcome to The Growth Show with Matt Lenzi. Today my guest is a, a, a person I've known for a number of years, pro- probably about 14, 15 years. I was thinking about it the other day. Um, my guest today is none other than Mr. Jeremy Harbour. Welcome, Jeremy. Hi, thank you. Good. Well, th- thank you for joining me. And I, I, I was thinking back over... I, I, I seem to remember many years ago, we went out in Watford for a few beers when, when, when you still lived in the UK um, and we were talking about some of the yeah. things you were up to then. Yeah, Yeah, that does really date it, doesn't it? Because I'm just trying to think. I mean, the last place I lived in the UK was Marlow. Um, right. And I left the UK probably 12 years ago. Right. So it must have been 15, must have been 15 years ago or so if I was still in Watford. Yeah, so... Um, yeah, that's uh, that, that's making me feel old. <laughs> <laughs> me, me too, me too. Um, yeah, and clearly we've we've kept in touch, and we had, I, we, we had one company set up at one point where we were uh, looking looking to, looking to do some stuff with uh, one of your um, is it mentees or, or or one of your students, I should say. Um, but yeah, we didn't didn't quite get there in terms of transactions then. But yeah, I guess I've you know from a personal perspective, I've kept a kept a BDI on what you've been up to and, and clearly clearly your your kind of strategy of uh, business acquisitions and and the training business seem to both have evolved since since we were talking but for those of my listeners who don't know who you are and what you do if you could provide a bit of narrative in terms of your background and how you got into um, buying and acquiring and agglomerating companies if that's a word um, that would be that would be really useful yeah yeah, no, you got it right first time. So, um, yeah, look, uh, most people, I think, come, I mean, I, I do mergers and acquisitions, but most people come at mergers and acquisitions from the kind of corporate advisory space. So they come in through investment banking, corporate finance, or, uh, you know, legal or financial backgrounds. I, I came into it from uh, an entrepreneurial background. So at a very young age, I was um, uh, doing startups. Uh, you know, I, uh, my first proper company, I was about 13 years old. I left school when I was 15 to pursue that. So I didn't actually completely finish uh, school. I did my last GCSE and left, basically. I didn't go back for any of the, I, I certainly didn't go back for any of the detentions I had left over um, <laughs> when, I, yeah, when, I, when I finished up. I thought, well, what are they gonna do? They're gonna give me another detention on me if I, if I don't go. Um, so, uh, What's the worst that can happen? Um, so uh, I went off to pursue that business. That business went bust when I was 18, um, which was probably quite useful to me at that time because it you know, taught me some humility. You know, when, when you start in business and things are going your way, you feel like you're invincible and everything you, you, know, everything you touch turns to gold and you quickly realize you know absolutely nothing and it's much harder than it looks on the outside. Um, so that was good. That, that taught me a lot of valuable uh, lessons. Um, I got into the telecom sector when that was really hot, and that was, I guess, my first introduction to the idea that you could buy a company instead of building one. Um, because, you know, up until that point, I think everything I'd looked at and studied, and you know, the seminars, the books, all of that kind of stuff, was all around, um, you know, sales, marketing, leadership, um, building, you know, a great culture and a team, and all that sort of stuff. And then all of a sudden, there were these guys trying to buy my little telecoms business. Um, and the interesting thing of it was the deal structures didn't involve a lot of their own cash. And so I kind of started thinking, well, you know, I don't have a lot of cash either. Maybe I should be on the other side of this table and I should be the one trying to buy another telecoms company. And so I, I pivoted the way I communicated with people because I think up until that point, you know, whilst I was the CEO and I would built a million pound a year business, 
I was really just a glorified salesperson. You know, I, I don't think there was, there was hardly a customer in the building that I hadn't bought in there, you know, and, um, uh, and so really I was a glorified salesperson. And, uh, and then when I pivoted and went out and started looking to acquire companies, I just got in way more interesting conversations. I started getting, you know, I had, a, I did a massive joint venture with Costco, which was, you know, more than double the size of the company on its own. Um, I, yeah, just just found that uh, not being a hunter opened so many other uh, doors up to me. But anyway, to to go back to the kind of uh, the origin story, if you like, um, I ended up finding a little distressed uh, mobile phone company down the road from me in, in Slough. Um, and I was able to acquire it without using any cash. And it was lucky because I didn't have any cash. I had a choice of paying my credit card bill or my staff. I didn't have this other, <laughs> this, this, uh, other option. Um, but I did this deal and we basically grew by a year's worth of sales in an afternoon. And it was like, it was an epiphany. It was like somebody, you know, opened the curtain and I looked behind the curtain and there was this whole other world there that I just didn't know was there the whole, the whole time. And in fact, two weeks after the ink dried on that contract, I bought an IT company as well, also with, with no money down. So it was kind of like a, a cork had popped, you know, and, it, and I was, it, it became kind of unstoppable. So wow. um, basically since then, I've just been fascinated with the idea of buying and selling companies instead of building them. Um, and I just felt it was like another rung on the entrepreneurial ladder that a lot of entrepreneurs never really explore because they get lost in that nitty gritty day-to-day -day staff and customers kind of stuff that mm. they don't pop their head above the parapet and look at the more strategic things they could be doing in their business like you know creating joint ventures which add huge amounts of value doing mergers which can you know get, get you amazing talent into the business or grow the business much more quickly or um, acquisitions which can be you know game-changing in terms of the scale that they can add to your business or exits which can be game changing for your own personal wealth, which mm. I guess was my next epiphany. I, I built a group of companies. We got up to, well, we went from a million a year in revenue and 20 staff to 135 staff and 13 and a half million in revenue in about 18 months flat. And that wow. probably wasn't, that was probably around the time we went for that beer in bodegas in Watford. <laughs> um, it was sort of that time of that time in my career. Um, and then in uh, 2006, I sold one and it was the capital event from selling a business that basically gave me my next epiphany, which is that you don't make money running businesses, you make money when you sell them and it, and it de-risks the whole situation. I also had businesses go bankrupt around that around that time. One was a, a call center business that had a, a very large exposure to the insurance company AIG. And AIG okay. went obviously bankrupt in 2008 and uh, we, we got caught with the fallout from that um, and that, that business I had to close down and that was a real cash cow for me. That was one that, you know, I, I relied on for a lot of cash flow. Mm. So all of these things kind of conflated to make me realize that you need to, you know, um, uh, create these capital events in order to build wealth and, that, you know, it's better to kind of almost buy and sell companies often rather than focus on one big you know, giant dream that you hope to sell in 20 years for 100 million or something like that. And so sure. basically over the last, you know, couple of decades, I've just been buying and selling companies relentlessly. I've done over 100 transactions in the kind of SME space, so small wow. businesses. Um, I've done a couple of IPOs. I've done lots of RTOs or reverse mergers where you take companies public by uh, pushing private companies into public companies and receiving public stock in exchange. Sure. Um, yeah. And... Uh, and, and as you mentioned, the agglomeration model and the agglomeration model was really an observation about what was going on in the marketplace. And that is that, you know, 50% of GDP in, in every major economy. So, I mean, we operate in the US, Canada, the UK, uh, Singapore, Australia and New Zealand um, mainly. Um, we, we do stuff in other places as well, but they're the main markets that we operate in. And uh, in all of those countries, 50% of GDP comes from small business. Over 90% of the private sector workforce is in small business, and yet small business gets zero allocation as an asset class from asset managers, fund managers, and, and all those things. If you look at the top 500 asset managers in the world, they control $93 trillion of investment, and they have this huge pie chart of how well diversified they are, and they're in every asset class imaginable to, you know, known to man. They're in all these investments plus precious commodities and um, you know Bitcoin real estate and stocks and bonds and all these kind of things but zero of it goes into the real economy that 50% of the economy that's, that's small business and I just felt if, if we could 
reconnect that capital to small business. A, it was a trillion dollar opportunity for me, but also it's a trillion dollar opportunity for the world at large, because it would bring all of that money that's kind of almost rotting in hot, sandy places, and it would bring it back into the real economy. It would get it out of Wall Street and into Main Street, um, yeah. where people can actually do some uh, something useful with it in all the you know all the communities that people operate in. So um, we had a crack at it in 2016. It didn't go to plan, um, but we kind of licked our wounds, uh, rebuilt the model, and went again in uh, 2018. We listed MBH Corporation PLC in 2018. Okay. Uh, 2019, it was the fastest growing small cap company in, in Europe, and uh, now it has 23 small business subsidiaries underneath it. So it's, it's like right. a mini Berkshire Hathaway. It's a diversified uh, investment holding group of small businesses. Um, and uh, yeah, we're, we're adding companies on a really regular basis into that agglomeration. And we call the model agglomeration because it's unlike a traditional roll up um, in that the business owners themselves effectively get the benefits of going public without all of the other sort of uh, pain in the ass points. Um, so they get to continue running their business as they had before. They get the benefit of uh, a big balance sheet, a big PL of a, a multinational public company. So they go pitch for bigger contracts and attract better talent and all of those things. Um, and uh, yeah, that's kind of keeping me uh, keeping me pretty busy. Wow, what what a what a, a story and what an introduction. So so in terms of the um, so I, I guess you kind of have two kind of core sides of the of, of, of what you spend your time on, and I'm sure you'll correct me if that's wrong. But I see it as you know you're actively acquiring these businesses, you know, and then you kind of have the training side where you're teaching other people how to how to kind of adapt and use that use that model as well. Um, how, how did that side come? Yeah, out? so. Yeah, so back, back in 2009, I started to get a bit of a reputation for, well, well, before that, I started to get a bit of a reputation for doing these deals. I mean, particularly, I would buy companies in other people's sectors for a pound, you know, for nothing, for no money down. Um, and the competitors would want to know how I did it. Um, and more often than not, actually, what they wanted was they wanted me to come on board as some sort of consultant or non-exec. So I, I would get all these offers all the time, come and work for us. You know, oh, we saw you bought XYZ company, come and work for us and help us grow our business by acquiring these businesses. And I just used to look at these offers and think, well, where could I do that? <laughs> you know, pardon the French, <laughs> but it's like, right. why, would I take a, why would I take a salary to, uh, you know, to acquire a company that I'd found where, where I could just buy it myself, you know, and, and sell it myself. I didn't, they, they had nothing that I needed, you know, and, and so... I guess they were pitching, you know, that they needed to focus on how they uh, how they pitch someone. But um, uh, but anyway, I, I ended up buying a seminar company and that was when the penny dropped was, uh, hang on, I've got all these people, because I was getting like an inquiry every few weeks from somebody saying, come and work for us. Hmm. And I bought the seminar company and I just realized that's what I do with the inquiries. I'll just teach them how to do it. I charge them a fee. I'm not jealous if they then go off and do it on their own because I'm, I can, I'm like a proud, a proud father in terms of I've taught them how to do this and now they're doing it. I can be... I can be proud of them. It's not like working with someone who steals all your ideas and goes off and does it. Um, so, uh, you know, why, why don't I teach it? And so I started teaching it in 2009. I called it the Harbour Club. Um, yeah. I used to charge 30, well, the first time I did it, I charged 35 grand for it. It was 45 grand six months later because I was price, price testing it. Um, yeah. And then I realized in 2009, I did, 12, I did 12 deals and 12 of them came from joint ventures with people in the Harbour Club. Um, okay. uh, I, I got so busy doing deals with my own community that I was creating yeah. um, that I'd, uh, I'd almost stopped doing my own uh, kind of, you know, running around and meeting people and stuff like that. And so um, uh, after that, basically what I decided to do was to drop the price, make it a more simple course, because we used to we used to fly off on a private jet to somewhere glamorous. The first one was in Saint-Tropez. Um, we then did all these monthly meetings at, uh, you know, five-star hotel out in the countryside in the UK and all this sort of stuff. So we basically got rid of all the fluff and just yep. focused on the, uh, the, the core education. And then over the years, what we've done is build a community side to it. So we now have like an app where everybody's in there. We've, uh, we've expanded into the US and into Australia. So we've got the whole, uh, whole world pretty much covered, the whole English-speaking world covered. Um, and, uh, and the community is incredibly active and vibrant now. I was saying to somebody the other day, there is now more content being posted in the app that's not by me um, than there is by me. So there's all these videos going in all the time around sourcing, around doing deals, around specifics in different countries, you know, um, hacks for Australia or hacks for Canada or, you know, whatever it is. So all this extra content is going in without me, uh, 
uh, you know, participating in in that, and um, and also the people doing deals. I mean, like um, somebody today on WhatsApp said they'd uh, um, they just sold a company, and I was like, shit, I didn't know you'd bought one. You know, it was um, <laughs> I, I, it was the first I'd heard of it. And another person was saying, I've done my fourth deal, and I was like, again, I, I didn't know about deals one, two, and three. You know, so um, the community's really taken on a life of its own, and they're they're you know out there really sort of hustling. So. Yeah, it's it's really fantastic. We we built it on a kind of um, an anti-seminar basis because you know the, the thing I hated was the traditional seminar model where it's all hard sell. There's not mm. you don't really get the information you want because they want to sell you the next thing all the time. So we yeah. we yeah. did this deliberate approach, which was to say, look, there's one fee. It's lifetime membership, and um, uh, and basically um, uh, there's no upsells, there's no cross sells, there's no mentoring, masterminding, you know any of that shit all of that stuff is included and and, and uh you know free in the within the structure so um we're a bit more expensive on the front end but that's because we're not going to try and sell you something afterwards it's done sure. you know and yeah. uh and, and we we're the only one i think that's actually based on real experience you know most of the others are selling regurgitated information that they've read rather than personal experience of you know hard hard one experience in the trenches Sure. So, um, so it really is quite a unique little uh, uh, little thing. But yeah, that I'm really lucky. I have a great team on on the Harbour Club, so I do very very little. I pretty much answer their questions, turn up and speak, go on to. We do um, these Q and A sessions where I answer anything that they can throw at me uh, on deals that they're working on or questions that they have about stuff. Um, and and that probably takes up a few days of my month, like two or three days a month, um, and then that's it. I don't have any involvement in the sales, the marketing, the onboarding, or anything. That's all. You know, the, the team takes care of that and, it's, and, and do a fantastic job and everybody uh, you know ra raves about it often people put off joining for quite some time and then when they do they their only regret is they didn't do it sooner so um, uh, you know it work, works really really well and then obviously the day job is yeah pretty much relentlessly um, pitching companies to acquire them take them public do roll-ups um, yeah uh, the, 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 the normal stuff Okay, interesting. And uh, I'm assuming you've had to kind of pivot how you're doing things due to COVID this year. What what impacts has, has that had on your business? And um, it, 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 are there any hot sectors that you're particularly interested in right now based upon, you know, the impact that that's had? Yeah, so it's an interesting question. I, I think there's two aspects to it. One is business and one is lifestyle. Of so course, yeah. um, the, 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 the business side, um, yeah, we, we pivoted basically because probably... 30% of our pipeline of, of acquisitions um, were at risk because of COVID. Um, mm. You know, not that they're going to die or anything. Most of the companies we deal with are, you know, 20 years old plus. So they've been through crisis before. They've been through recessions before. I know everyone always says this time is different. Actually, there's a lot of similarities in every crisis. So um, uh, the, um, uh, you know, so, so it's not that they'll fall off a cliff. It's just that they're less appetizing to bring on board at this time. So what we did is we, we kind of pivoted away from businesses that were, you know, more threatened by COVID and focused on businesses that had a lot more opportunity because of COVID. So um, the companies we acquired last year was a, you know, caravan and motorhome business, right. um, which okay. obviously yeah. is, is a boom, booming sector. Um, yeah. We um, bought on board a, a company that reskills unemployed people to get jobs in health and social care, um, okay. which again is obviously um, absolutely booming and the government's throwing uh, another announcement today even more money going into that space through the apprenticeship scheme um uh we did uh, a um taxi company um which is uh basically electric vehicles but they also disinfect the cars in between every use and they right. can guarantee the drivers wearing a mask so they're winning lots of corporate business away from the likes of uber uh where you know then it's not their own cars it's not their own drivers so they've got no um guarantee of those sort of things so there's a duty of care obviously for employers to make sure that people are as safe as possible so we can help them conform to that it's also a very acquisitive strategy so they've already done their first couple of acquisitions um and uh, and many more uh, to come so yeah we've been able to pivot and focus on businesses that had a good covid or post covid um story so um uh, and also looking at a few ipos in uh, in in that sort of space as well things that would be relatively uh, uh, COVID proof. And I mean, I think we kind of expected 2021, or sorry, we expected 2020 to be the ESG year. That's how it was all framing up. Um, and uh, and I'm doing some fairly exciting things in the ESG space that I can't talk about until they get their 
um, approval from various regulators, but um, uh, we were doing some exciting stuff in that space. And then obviously COVID came along and that switched the entire narrative away from ESG and into, you know, the, the thing that's dominated the news basically for the last 12 months. So, um, uh, so, but I think ESG is still, you know, everyone's talking about building back better, coming back, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know um, not just going back to the way it was after COVID and perhaps focusing more on sustainability and, and uh, you know, um, environmentally conscious business and things like that. And so I think that will still be a big theme, um, mm. but we just have to get this current, you know, shit out of the way first, basically, before anyone can focus on, uh, on anything else. So I think, I think that was a big thing. And then lifestyle-wise, I, I live in Singapore, um, and uh, or my primary residence is Singapore. And Singapore have done just the most fantastic job of keeping COVID out. It's COVID-free. Um, they had they had it earlier than most because of the proximity to China and the relationship with uh, the Chinese community. So so we had our lockdown back at the end of January, beginning of February. Um, I think it was like April or something in the UK. Um, mm. And so we did the lockdown there. But actually, as soon as the lockdown uh, was lifted, um, I chose to take my family out of Singapore purely because Singapore had a, a guaranteed like a quarantine system. Right. So basically, when you come back into Singapore, you have to spend two weeks in a hotel, which is now being introduced in more and you know, more and more places. They still haven't introduced it in the UK yet, but they're in the process of doing that now. So ah, just just shows okay, yeah, you the kind of uh, bit of a time, you know, near, a near, nearly a year later, Boris is getting his act together. But anyway, that's a yeah, different yeah. conversation. I think uh, I, I think gates and horses and bolting kind of spring to mind. In there. It's kind of like a bit, bit fucking late. But anyway, um, uh, so we we decided to relocate ourselves, and and we're we're multi, you know, we're we're global citizens anyway. So um, my wife and I, uh, um, yeah, uh, are quite nomadic in our in our living. We always spend about seven months a year in Singapore, and the rest of the year, you know, all over the place. Um, we have homes in, in Ukraine and in Spain and, and Dubai. Um, and uh, so we decided at the time, du uh, Dubai was in a really severe lockdown at the time. Spain was in a lockdown. Um, Ukraine, we have a lovely house and it wasn't locked down. So we decided to base ourselves um, in Ukraine for, uh, from May. Um, and, uh, and we decided we were just going to try and live as normal a life as possible. So we carried on traveling throughout the uh, pandemic. But the difference was we had to choose countries that were open um so the first we went for a month to bodrum in turkey where we had some friends and we spent some time uh, uh, down there and that was uh, that was very nice um then uh, uh up so we went to vienna and to um parma to, to mallorca because we go to mallorca every year uh, anyway and then um uh, i remember one time we were looking at where to go and literally the only airspace that was open from ukraine was uh, montenegro Right. I've never been to Montenegro before, so literally we flew we flew to Montenegro and spent um, we spent two weeks in one part and two weeks in the port of Montenegro. There, a fantastic place, what a beautiful country! It's really uh, yeah, I was really impressed with it. So, yeah, so over the summer we we basically yeah did a month of Turkey, a month of Montenegro, and some and some other travel. And then uh, as winter started to bite in Ukraine, we decided and Dubai was open. Uh, we decided, like I think most of Europe, by the looks of it, to go to Dubai. <laughs> um, so. Um, so uh, I'm in Dubai right now, and uh, and yeah, we'll probably sit out the winter here uh, before um, uh, heading somewhere else. So uh, yeah, we've managed to keep up the nomadic lifestyle, um, but uh, but yeah, business has pivoted a little bit. Yeah, okay. And and in terms of for maybe entrepreneurs or business owners that are you know their their kind of eyes are beginning to open to the the kind of potential opportunity of acquisitions what advice would you give somebody who's kind of considering or maybe this is the first time they've heard about you know the fact that you can go and buy companies for no money down what would your kind of starting steps be in that process if you were to start again now yeah look i i would i would start to educate yourself on the topic um uh there it, it really is an eye-opener it's a completely new area look there's so many ways that you can use this as well you can use this to grow your existing business so you can mm -hmm. use it to just simply add more revenue or different products or services or expand geographically or even just attract great people you know the great people you want to employ are often working in your competitors so acquiring your competitors is a great way of getting them because one of the qualities that makes them great is their loyalty so they won't leave and come work for you, go, go and acquire them. 
So, um, so really, you know, acquisition to grow a business can be used in so many, uh, so many different ways. And then obviously the way that, that I created a lot of personal wealth and also a lot of personal freedom um, is in buying and selling companies. So buying them, restructuring them and, and selling them on again. And that, and that creates kind of six or seven figure capital events. And it's those capital events that really, you know, transform uh, your life, that ability to, you know, travel around and spend all that time with your family and away from, you know, one central place is, is really, it really comes out of, um, you know, doing deals and creating wealth outside of having everything tied up in one, you know, small private company. So um, uh, I've, uh, I have loads of free resources. So if people um, go on to harbourclubevents.com, they can get a free um, report. Um, we do a 21-day free email course where you can get a, an email every day with an update. I've written a book called Go Do Deals. So we actually have the URL, godo.deals. Oh, there it is, yeah. <laughs> so um, yeah, you're lucky to have a copy, actually. They sold that. It was, um, we made number three. So we released in December. Everyone said, don't release in December because you're up against every celebrity chef and ex-president and <laughs> everything like that. Everyone publishes their book in, in December. Um, but we'd actually, we'd actually announced that we were going to publish it December 2020, two years ago, because we used to give just copies out to people who came to the Harbour Club. Right, and okay. uh, so we'd had that date in the diary for two years, and it was only when it actually got close that our, you know, book marketing people said, "Oh, you shouldn't do it in December." And it's like, well, too, too fucking late. We've been telling everyone for two years it's going to be <laughs> December 2020. I can't, can't change it now. Um, but and we completely caught the publisher by by surprise. The publisher was Morgan James in the U.S., and um, we were number three in the Wall Street Journal bestsellers list, and no, number one wow. was Obama. Well, wow. um, okay. just so just before Christmas, yeah, just before Christmas, we made, <laughs> made number three, but that meant there was zero books in circulation. So a lot of people in the UK were ordering them for Christmas. And as soon as they would print more, um, they would always prioritize the US booksellers first. So go to Barnes and Noble, just keep supplying Barnes and Noble instead of sending them out to people that were ordering in the UK. So because um, right, okay. uh, they want to keep their retail, their retail buyers sweet, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, we had a real, uh, there was a real constriction on availability. So, yeah, you, you did well to get a copy. I, I believe it or not, I don't have a, a hardback copy yet. Uh, <laughs> so um, I said to them, look, make sure you fulfill all the other orders first and then send me a box full, you know, when you're done. So I've got the, I've got the uh, paperbacks, but not the, uh, not the hardback one. Yeah. So well, yeah. Done. well, no, it, it arrived, arrived a couple of weeks ago, but it's, yeah, it's, it's an interesting, I mean, it, it kind of covers some of what we've talked about today, but it, yeah, it gives a bit of an insight yeah. into the things that things that you're you, you were looking for at, at that time. And I guess I kind of asked this already, but it, it, you know, if if it, we we find ourselves in a quite an interesting financial situation in terms of you know the the, the governments have you know quantitative easing, they've printed a load of money once again. Um, you know, I, I was watching a YouTube video this morning where they were talking about the potential for kind of it, it being a bit like the 1940s and, um, you know, kind of long term um, uh, interest rates. So CPI uplifts, which effectively, you know, could potentially erode real capital. Um, how, how do you, yeah. you know, is, is there any sectors that you'd be you, you'd be looking at to kind of arbitrage that in any way? What, what's your thoughts on that? Well, look, I mean, I mean, anything really, isn't it? I mean, almost owning anything is anti-inflationary. Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, the, the worst thing you can do is, um, you know, is sit on cash um, in, yeah. in this environment because it's, it, it's just eroding. So al almost any asset is probably, uh, um, uh, is probably better. Um, but, um, yeah, I, um, I mean, look, the, the, the great thing is you don't need money to buy businesses. So that, that's a separate uh, issue, you know, the the, the thing I always uh, tell people is that you need to buy and sell businesses to create capital, and then deploy that capital into assets that generate you money. Um, and the, and this is a really big problem because I've been doing this for twenty years, and so I've I've built my wealth over twenty years. But then people see me with the houses, the cars, and the private jet, and just assume they're the things that they need to spend and their money. You know, um, rich people buy income; they don't buy things. Um, they buy things when they've got enough income coming from their <laughs> from their um, yeah. you know passively deployed assets. They can then start to buy the things as well. And so it, it's kind of educating people that they've got it. You know, you've got to do it that way round. But everybody looks at um, you know that they, they wouldn't have looked at me 20 years ago, but they'll look at me now, and then they'll try and base what they should be doing on what I'm doing now, not what I was doing 20 years ago. So it's that kind yeah. of um, 
I guess it's constantly reminding people that there are, you know, you've got to do steps one and two before you do steps, you know, uh, 88 and 89. Uh, and uh, otherwise you can, you can create a, you know, a massive mess. Um, yeah. But it's really interesting. I, I often ask people the question, you know, uh, if I gave you $3 million, what would you do with it? Or if I gave you 3 million pounds, what would you do with it? And, you know, the, the people that um, understand money always buy income. Um, yeah. And, you know, the normal people, the civilians, if you like, and I, I would probably fall into this category for, you know, more than half of my life would say, oh, I'm going to pay off my mortgage or buy a nice house, buy a nice car and put the rest in the bank or put the rest into some sort of investment, you know. So but yeah. they always start with the things. They always start with the buy the house, buy the car, invest the rest um, instead yeah. of invest it all and use the income that's generated from that investment to buy the house and buy the car. Yeah. Um, so uh, it's just that, um, yeah, that simple kind of pivot, that one degree shift in thinking for, for wealth creation. Uh, yeah, I, th I think you're, you know, you, you've obviously got lots of experience of the kind of downsides of these things. And clearly there are potential risks associated with, you know, buying companies. And, you know, if you if you don't, you know, a huge part of a, an acquisition, in my in my opinion, and, you know, I, I'm in the process of making one at the moment and that will be my first. But in, in terms of that acquisition process, a huge part of that is the implementation of systems and processes so that you can make a business that's very scalable. So, um, yeah, I guess it, pe people perceive a risk of making an acquisition, but you've got some strategies and some tactics that can a reduce that risk and b also the processes that you're implementing into these in, into these companies will will hopefully in, ensure that that you get maximum returns on that. Is that is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's about quantifying what the real risks are because I think people see risk but can't articulate it, so they don't actually understand where the risk is or what the risk they're taking is, you know. And so then they worry about it. And yeah. you know, what worrying is like a rocking chair; it gives you something to do, but it won't get you anywhere. Um, you need to uh, you, you need to understand what the risk you're taking. So what 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 I encourage people to do is to um, remove the risks from the transaction so that the risk, the, the transaction becomes asymmetric in terms of risk. Now, right. asymmetric risk is the old hedge fund kind of quant um, expression, which is where basically they put in place all the mechanisms to protect the downside, but mm. leave, uh, uh, leave the upside intact. And, and that's what we really do with a small business acquisition. So, for example, you know, we'll create an SPV company, which is just a standalone limited company that we use for the transaction. So you wouldn't, you know, if you have an existing company, you don't use that existing company, which would potentially create risk because you've become a contracting party. So you can sure. get sued and you can lose your existing company. Um, so you use this, you know, this, this empty SPV as the, as the contracting party. And then, you know, the, other, the, the biggest one is, of course, deployment and capital. If you're not deploying capital into the transaction or borrowing money that you're guaranteeing, and putting that into the transaction, um, then that also de-risks the transaction um, a huge amount. So we're, we're always looking at how do we push the risk somewhere else um, and make sure that our downside is pretty much our kind of time and effort that we put in. So effectively, all we stand to lose is our you know time and perhaps you could classify that as opportunity risk because you could have been doing something something else. Mm. Um, and then once you've, once you've covered all of that downside, well, then if it's successful, you make a load of money. If it's not, you're not. And then, you know, in terms of that implementation of the systems and processes and stuff, yeah, that's that's important. But there should be a quick fix that adds a lot of value. Um, right. And, you know, we, we look at um, a number of financial engineering tactics on the Harbour Club, which give that kind of fix, that quick fix that, that has a, a quick impact on the business. And, you know, quite often um, uh, it's, it's very low hanging fruit because no one running a business can ever stand back and look at it objectively. Um, you know, it's it's very easy to tell. You, it's very easy to tell what's wrong with somebody else's business. It's almost yeah. impossible to tell what's wrong with your business. You know? yeah. So that, that objectivity, when you bring that into uh, a deal, can quite often have quite a quick uptick. And and the thing that I reinforce with the Harbour Clubbers as well is focus on the financial engineering and the things that you could take away. So what are the things that you could do to reduce costs? Don't focus on things like increasing sales or improving the marketing stuff. Treat those as like the icing on the cake. You know, if you can increase the sales or you can improve the efficiency of their marketing, fantastic. But if you're if the deal is predicated on that, it probably won't happen quick enough to make it all stack up. So there's got to be a quicker win in there, something that's instantly controllable and doesn't re rely on the vagaries of, uh, of customers or other human beings um, uh, in order for it to work. And then, and, and that's kind of a key. So protect the downside and have a 
have a quick fix that you can inject into the business straight away that's, that's going to have an improvement. Yeah, okay. And, and in terms of the kind of generational side of things where we find ourselves, you know, I've, I've been doing lots of research on this and, you know, followed some other courses as well. And there are other people that offer, offer similar, similar things that, that you do. Um, and I've, I've, you know, part, part of the kind of um, high level macro perspective is, you know, baby boomer generation, you know, potentially, you know, frankly, can't be fucked with another recession, you know, too much like hard work maybe haven't digitized their companies, yep. potential opportunities from that side of things. Do, do, you, do you see that, 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 you know, that, is, that is a large opportunity right now? Yeah, yeah, it, it's a tidal wave of opportunity. I mean, anyone that thought about selling their business in the next three to five years is pretty much ready to go now. Right. Um, so, you know, you've bought forward hundreds of thousands of businesses that were on the fence and yep. you brought them to a point of saying, okay, I'm ready. Um, you're, you're absolutely right. The baby boomers have seen this movie before. Yep. Um, they know this is the start of the movie and yep. they don't like how it ends. <laughs> so they, they'd much rather do something about, about it now and go relax rather yep. than have to go through the making redundancies, dealing with you know all of the shit that you have to do in a recession. It's, it's the least fun, you know, every, every time, whether it was the European debt crisis, the dot-com collapse, the 2008 global financial crisis, the you know, uh, the October 87 crash or, or whatever it was, the, mm. the knock-on effect, you know, normally hits small business for a good two to three year period. And so for mm. two to three years, it's hard. You're scaling back, you're losing money, you're making people redundant. You know, making people redundant is the shitty end of the entrepreneurial of stick. Nobody yeah. likes doing it. Um, everybody does it too late. That always has a negative impact on the on the business that then means it takes even longer to recover from. And so, you know, it's just making those hard choices. And, and especially, you know, when you get to a recession, there's a there's a massive proportion of businesses that just sit there and hope everything will go back to normal really quickly. And I think we saw that at the beginning of last year with everyone going, OK, well, you know, particularly the businesses that were directly affected, like the hairdressers, the you know, um, restaurants and all those people, instead of pivoting, you know, so you saw restaurants opening dark kitchens and doing deliveries yep. services and things like that. And then you saw yep. other restaurants saying, okay, I'll just wait until it all goes back to normal. Yep. Um, and the ones that are waiting for it to go back to normal are all fucked. Um, <laughs> the ones that pivoted and did something um, actually probably have, uh, you know, have, have some something to rescue out the other side of it. So, you know, but I've seen this every every time, you know, when we had the global financial crisis, which was the last really big one, you know, I mean, we had the European debt crisis in the middle of that, and that didn't affect everyone. Mm. Um, but the, you know, the, the GFC, the 2008, 2009, I mean, that limped on for years afterwards with really slow growth, not much liquidity in the market, banks not lending, um, you know, less cash in the system than there were invoices outstanding all, all around, you know, it was mm. kind of like um, somebody had stopped and there weren't enough chairs, but fortunately nobody stopped playing the music. You know? So people only survived because banks weren't, weren't um, foreclosing and, and, gov and the government wasn't pulling the plug on people that owed loads of tax either. So mm. it was only by virtue of the, you know, the people that normally are the biggest petitioners for bankruptcy um, kind of took some time off. Um, it was pretty much the only reason half the businesses survived through it. Yeah, yeah. And, and in, uh, I guess in, here in the UK, I was talking to a, a regional director from HSBC the other day about potential business acquisitions. And I was explaining some of the stuff that I was up to. And he, his view was very much that, you know, whilst things are, you know, ticking over at the moment, you know, when the furlough scheme gets, gets stopped, um, you know, people have spent their C bills and bounce back mm -hmm. loans, you know, if, if they've taken them, of course, then potentially that's when, you know, this really comes home to roost. So his view was, you know, kind of May, yeah, May, I mean, May onwards. Yeah. Yeah, the entire economy is on drugs, basically, isn't it? The patient, the patient is alive, but only because they've been pumped full of drugs. And, you know, after every drug binge, there's got to be a hangover. So, it's, um, <laughs> yeah, it's kind of, it's, it's, in the, it's in the post. I mean, the only thing I guess is that what, you know, what they did with the global financial crisis is that they managed to keep that stimulus going for much, much longer. I mean, if you, if you remember what happened, they took extraordinary measures to protect mm -hmm. the economy and, and particularly to protect the housing market. And, and there's a very good argument that they actually probably should have let a few more banks go bust and they probably should have let a few more house repossessions happen because mm -hmm. then we probably would have got that recession out of the way by 20, by 2009. Yeah. And then 10, 11 and 12 would have been uh, exponential growth because the housing mm -hmm. market would have had this meteoric rise back to where it is now. And, you know, um, and the bank customers would have just gone somewhere else and, and banked with the uh, banks with the more solvent uh, bank. Mm 
um, but instead they pumped it all full of drugs and you and we limped for three or four years and you know it, it's always really hard because um you know there, there are livelihoods and people involved at the end of those decisions you of know course. it's not as simple as saying well everyone should have lost their lost their homes because mm. that's horrible um but um but yeah there, there's there's always the, the sliding doors moment. What would have happened if they didn't get on the train? You know, if they'd done it yeah. a different way, would it have been better? And you know, a short rip the bandaid off, and then a short, and then it would have been all over, and and uh, and much better after that. Uh, and are we seeing the same thing now? Which is that they're going to keep drip feeding the economy with these drugs, and so that uh, we have a we have a few years of stag stagnation or stagflation mm. before we can get back to proper growth. Well, it, it certainly feels like it. I mean, they have um, repossessions have been frozen on, you know, on, on certainly on residential property, and also yeah. on, on vehicles. You can't sue anyone. At the you, you almost can't sue anyone at the moment. Debt recovery and yeah, yeah, yeah it's, it's all completely stopped. And another bellwether, which um, my, my wife told me the other day, that car sales in the UK are at their lowest level for fifty years. So that that's quite a scary one because obviously that's a, oh, wow. that's an indication of so consumer that's confidence. interesting because when they bought out the bank. Yeah, when they bought out the bounce back loans, I heard that um, most of the Lamborghini garages ran out of stock. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> so, so in terms of um, your your plans going forwards, obviously you've built you know you've built a, a fairly substantial base. There is more of the same, and when's enough enough? Um, yeah, look, uh, I, I'm just really enjoying it at the moment. You know, I, I live a fantastic lifestyle with my family and, uh, you know, uh, I get to stay home the whole time. So I spend a lot of time with my uh, kids. We travel together a lot. Um, uh, and, you know, so from a lifestyle perspective, you know, I have uh, I have zero complaints. We have beautiful homes. We, we do, you know, wonderful things. So from that, that perspective, I have zero complaints. We've still got a lot to prove in the small uh, business space. Um, so, you know, we want our agglomerations to grow. We want to, you know, uh, uh, really um, get on the radar of the big institutions in terms of opening up small businesses, a really viable asset class for them to invest in. Um, because once we've done that, then that really uh, opens the floodgates for global capital to flood into small businesses. And we're, we're all about you know, helping small businesses and making entrepreneurship, you know, pay again, make it make it a you know, meritocratically rewarding activity for people to um, uh, to engage in. So um, uh, yeah, we've still got a lot to prove there. So uh, uh, yeah, I've got I've got another book coming this year called Democratizing Wealth, which is all about using entrepreneurship and uh, uh, and this quirk in the economy. The fact that there are there's almost like a parallel economy. There's the one where everybody lives and works, and there's the economy where all the money is, and that we need to try and reconnect those if we want to solve the problems of, of inequality. Um, and uh, so uh, I'll be doing a lot around that launch uh, in the summer uh, this year. Uh, might even come to the UK, who knows? Um, but uh, I haven't been for ages. So um, yeah, lot, lots on really. But yeah, right now still still plenty to prove, plenty to keep me hungry. Yeah, okay. And in terms of um, your kind of, um, you know, you mentioned earlier on that you kind of educated yourself and you've learned, learned a lot of these tactics yourself. How, how you know, if, if, hmm. if somebody wanted to, you know, is, is there any books that you'd recommend or how, how do you um, uh, take in your media? Do you watch YouTube videos or do audible? What, what's the kind of approach that you take in, in terms of digesting content? Yeah, so look, I'm a, I'm a business geek and so I'm always looking for, uh, for new stuff. I read a lot of books and actually I'm, I'm singularly disappointed by all the books on M&A. Um, because most of them are written by advisors. So they just tell you to surround yourself by advisors or it's somebody selling a course and they're just trying to pitch you the course. And I, I mm. tried to steer away from that in my own book and actually just give people content that was, you know, they could go out and apply. Yeah. Um, uh, because I think, yeah, there, there's too much kind of fluff um, out there. Um, but yeah, certainly, you know, obviously I'd recommend reading my own books in terms of understanding that, that area of things. Um, but then just be a business geek. I mean, I'm, I, I read about business all the time. I even read statutes and, and legal, you know, when new laws come into place, when the, the, you know, the Enterprise Act or the Finance Act or um, any of these things come into place, um, you can read the stodgy statute itself or most law firms publish papers um, around new legislation that make it a lot more digestible. So you can go onto some of the major um, law firm websites and read their analysis of those changes and, and case laws and things like that. And, and a lot of the strategies that we come up with actually is from 
reading those kind of things. So some of the personal guarantee stuff has come from case law that I've read about and uh, uh, or other Harbour clubbers have read about and recommended to us. Um, so um, yeah, we're always, we're always kind of learning and always adapting. And of course you learn a lot from actually doing the deals. So, you know, my mm. advice to everybody is to actually go out there, start engaging with business owners and start talking to people and find out where you get. Um, I wouldn't bother looking for businesses for sale. I wouldn't go down the broker route. I would just start conversations with people that own businesses right now and see what their plans are for the future and see if any of those plans that you're able to, because you'll learn infinitely, infinitely more from those conversations than you will from pretty much anything else, even from doing my course. You know, doing my course will arm you with all the tools, but actually going out and doing it um, yeah. will really prepare you. I, I often describe it like breaking your virginity. You can read as many books about having sex as you want, but you, you, need, to go, <laughs> you need to go and break your virginity <laughs> if you really want to experience it. <laughs> so, um, yeah, interesting analogy. And in, in terms of your kind of yeah. pers personal life, do you, do, you, do you have specific routines or structure the way that you work? Do you meditate? You know, you, you into yoga? What's what's the stuff that keeps you focused and keeps you <laughs> All that kind of stuff. So, so I, um, uh, yeah, I have a really disrupted lifestyle because we move all the time. Um, yeah. So what I tend to do is I tend to redraw my habits every time we relocate somewhere. Um, so, for example, here in Dubai, um, they have very early school time, um, I guess, because in the summer, it's really hot in the afternoon. So they, they shift the school time forward. So although um, my kids are in a British curriculum and but they were in school in Singapore, they were in school in Ukraine, and they're in school here. So they're, they're following a similar curriculum, but in different countries. Yeah. Um, and uh, so here I get up at like six o'clock in the morning. I have the kids on the school bus by 640. Then I take the dog for a walk and then I go for a run. And then when I get back, it's about eight o'clock and I do all of my email messages and all of that stuff to clear the desk. Yeah. Um, so by nine o'clock, I'm, I'm like clear and I've, and I've had my first coffee and I'm ready to go. And then uh, I tend to do all my work in the morning. And, and typically with what I'm doing, um, it's not more than like an hour or two's kind of work. I, I normally call it a sort of power hour. Yeah. Um, which is, you know, reading, reading contracts for deals that we're involved in or, you know, whatever it might be. Um, and then uh, the, the goal is normally then to head to the gym at about 11 o'clock. Um, yeah. uh, but I haven't done that. I haven't done that since we moved house. So I will restart that um, pretty soon. I've, we moved house. It's just been chaos. So we bought a new place in the, in the marina here. We were, we were literally in the building opposite us and we've just moved to the other side to right. a, a sort of villa on the front of the marina here. Um, and since we moved in, we had like a few days where we we're waiting for stuff to be delivered. We were, you know, um, crockery and glasses were arriving. Then we didn't have a, um, the gas connected, then no internet. Then, you know, so I've had, I've had a couple of weeks off of, of uh, kind of normal life. Um, but yeah, normally we'd hit the gym and then I have my breakfast about 12. Um, so, oh, so you uh, fast, um, basically so I, fast every day then? So, so I do, so I do intermittent fasting. Yeah. yeah. So basically, I get all of the stuff out of the way, and I train, I train fasted, and then, uh, then I hit the, um, yeah, I hit breakfast at about twelve, and um, uh, and then the afternoon, kids get back at two forty. Um, so uh, afternoon is normally out somewhere with the kids. Uh, recently, it's been fucking shopping for stuff for the house. <laughs> so it's um, <laughs> has been has been far too much of my time. Um, but yeah, normally it's kind of running around doing all that, uh, all that kind of stuff in the afternoon. And of course the old zoom call, um, and, yeah. uh, uh, and other bits and pieces. Um, and, uh, the good thing about the kids getting up really early is they go to bed pretty early and then the evenings, you know, out, out for dinner or, um, uh, not, not that often, maybe a couple of times a week, three times a week. And then, um, otherwise just, uh, hanging out with the missus and, uh, uh, enjoying ourselves. Um, so yeah, pretty, um, pretty tame, pretty normal. We, we travel a lot. My, hmm. my wife is talking about going to the Maldives next week. Uh, I'm not sure if uh, I, I, we've just unpacked. I don't really feel like packing again. I'll <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> tell you what, though, I'd, I'd love to go to the Maldives. And obviously, we're not we're not able to at the moment unless it's for business purposes. So yeah, if I was yeah, you, I'd, so I'd be getting I'm, on that. I'm very, <laughs> I'm very fortunate. It's it obviously here's relatively close. We're kind of halfway. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, and of course we have our own plane, so it's fairly easy to to do. But, um, but yeah, uh, still, um, still, just the thought of packing again and unpacking again and all that stuff isn't particularly appealing. I quite like to have like a, a few days uninterrupted just to enjoy the new home and get some stuff done. But, um... <laughs> 
we'll see. Very good. And, and is there any other tips that you'd give people to, you know, enable them to focus and to work, work harder? Is there any, any, any other ideas that you've, you've come across or come up with? Yeah, look, I think, I think most people are kind of prone to procrastination and, uh, and trying to think of things that they need to do before they're going to take action. And I, I see this a lot with, with um, delegates who come through my program. They, they do the education piece and then they feel like they're not quite ready yet. Um, you know, there's maybe a, that 1% more that they need before they can start. Um, but that's kind of in your head. That's your, that's your fear holding you back. And, mm. um, you know, I, I love this expression that you really need to start before you're ready. Um, and I think, you know, mo most entrepreneurs, the reason they the reason they start any business is because there's a little bit of naive bravado in there. Um, mm. They don't know how hard it's going to be, so they do it. Um, yeah. But obviously, as you get older, you realize how hard it's going to be, so you don't do it. Yeah. <laughs> and that's that's a big one to overcome. And, you know, we, we've we've embarked on some bonkers projects like, you know, trying to list an ETF, um, which we're doing at the moment, um, okay. you know, doing a, a listing a SPAC, listing a REIT. Um, issuing a bond, so we issued a bond last year, um, like a, a regulated bond. Okay. Um, uh, all of those kind of things, you know, they're, they're really daunting and they're quite expensive and they're time consuming and you have to learn a lot to do them. Um, mm. But you can piss around thinking about doing it or you can just get on and do it. And, mm. um, you know, uh, sure, you're going to, you're going to, there's going to be some bumps in the road, you know, and, and I would say anything you do in, in, in the world of entrepreneurship or anything you do, you know, expect traffic. Uh, there's yeah. going to be some there's going to be some issues and you just have to get on with it and go and go through it and come out the other side and and you know so the the biggest differentiator i think i see between people who are successful and people who are perhaps less successful is literally taking action it's literally doing yeah. something yeah. um uh, and uh you know some of the smartest people i know um are, are never that successful because they're so smart they know how fucking hard it's going to be so they don't take action <laughs> and then they don't make any progress um whereas you know a, a little a little bit of you know dumb naivety can actually be a good thing because you just bowl in there thinking you can do it and then you find out what it's like when you're there and that that means you once you're there you might as well you know what is it they say um if you're going through hell keep going <laughs> so basically when it gets hard you've got no choice you've got to keep going so um uh, yeah, I would say that, that you know, you've got to be action orientated. You've got to do stuff. Um, I've always been very impulsive. I've always made decisions. You can repent at leisure. You know, just take, just just move, uh, move forwards and, and do things. And I think that's, uh, I think that's really important. And and your environment is really important. Put yourself in a positive environment. Um, you know, I, um, I love Singapore because Singapore is just a can-do place. It's um, uh, it's an example of. You know almost the manifestation of the impossible um it was a little island that didn't even have any water uh, mm. had to import water and it's now got one of the largest sovereign wealth funds in the world incredible economy um zero crime almost you know um it, it's just an incredible place and, and dubai has a bit of that about it as well it's that uh 30 years ago it was uh, you know mm. a pile of dust and it's now this incredible um city and economy and uh and lifestyle and, and everything else they've literally made the impossible possible and, and mm. that's what entrepreneurship is all about making the impossible possible and yeah. so sometimes i find you know the environment that you're in can really affect the way you think i mean mm. you know the media and stuff in the U in the uk and the us is super depressing um mm. it's, you know it doesn't it doesn't help you it doesn't help you move uh, forwards in fact the first place i moved abroad properly i lived in italy for a little bit but the first first proper residency I, I got after the UK was Mallorca in Spain right. and yeah. I always used to joke the best thing the best thing about living there was that I didn't understand the news um <laughs> you know newspaper headlines news on tv had no fucking idea what they were saying <laughs> and honestly that's that sorted 90 that that was probably you know 90 percent of the problems in, in my life sorted because I didn't have, I wasn't ambushed by all this negativity all the time yeah. and the other aspect was my diary emptied um, all of a sudden, I wasn't having, I, you know, when I, was in, when I was in the UK, I was leaving really early to go to a meeting in London, then another meeting after that, another meeting after that, another meeting after that, then you meet someone for drinks, then you come home, then you go to sleep, then you go and do it all again. Mm. I moved to Mallorca, suddenly my diary's empty, and I made loads more money, I had to, did loads more deals. It was like I was busy for busy's sake, and as soon yeah. as I cleared all of that stuff out, uh, it just got better. I tell you what, we're, sorry, I'm babbling on now, but we're, we're kind of almost at the risk of doing that with Zoom meetings now. Yeah, because um, you know that that I'll just meet you meet you for a quick coffee thing that we 
piled our diary full of. We're now full of these Zoom meetings. That when you get on them, you realize, fuck, we didn't need to have this meeting at all. What are we doing? You know, like, why, why, why are we even here? Because um, you just said, okay, yeah, let's hop on a Zoom and discuss it. Okay, let's hop on a Zoom and discuss it. Okay, let's hop on. And you've done that so many times. In the end, you kind of, yeah, you're just having these relentless meetings and, and not really focused uh, action orientated meetings. But, but at the same time, it, that, because everybody is at home, I've personally found that it, mm -hmm. it does make people more accessible as well, because, you know, did, you know that they're well, at home. So, yeah. yeah, but really weirdly, I mean, we do, we obviously we deal with a lot of stuff in capital markets. So taking mm -hmm. companies public, dealing with, um, you know, financial uh, um, businesses and stuff like that. And you know where they are, but they're moving even fucking slower than normal. <laughs> so I don't know what's going on. It's like they've got nothing else to do apart from read our agreement and sign it and send it back. And yet it takes infinitely longer. I think everyone's just fucking drunk. <laughs> it's like, uh, they're, they're in lockdown, so they're hitting the wine fridge. <laughs> at, at lunchtime or for breakfast, yeah. <laughs> I'm, exactly, I'm, yeah, yeah I'm, getting I'm earlier and earlier every day. I'm sure there's, <laughs> sure there's an element of that going on. Uh, Cool. Well, that, that, look, it's been a really interesting insight into some of the things that you've got going on. Is there a, a kind of takeaway that you'd give somebody that, 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 you know, now they've got a bit of an insight into the world that you, you've built? Um, yeah. Is there, is there one takeaway that you'd have? And secondly, do you, do you have a kind, of, a, a kind of clearly defined plan in terms of how you're creating that future? I, I very much refer to what you've done and, you know, I'm trying to incorporate some of this into my own life as lifestyle by design. Is, is that something that you've, yeah. you know, you've, you've intentionally structured your life that way? And, you know, do you have a vision board or how, how do you, how do you focus? Yeah. So look, I am deliberately lifestyle driven. Um, yeah. and, uh, and I think I took that on board from the four hour work week, um, a yeah. long time ago, um, where, you know, I read that kind of lifestyle by design idea. And I think that really resonated with me and I, uh, and it was around the time I was selling companies and that was why I thought, okay, how do I do entrepreneurship, but wherever I want it to be mm. and moved to Mallorca and, and built, you know, went, went lifestyle first. And, you know, I always thought I could probably make more money if I stayed in London and just, you know, did, uh, did everything from there and really got my head down. But then where's the fun in that? You know, I get to live in all these wonderful glamorous places and enjoy myself and spend all this time with my family. It's a, it's a much better, uh, kind of um, uh, kind of way to do it. Um, I, I'm very old fashioned in terms of uh, goals. I use um, notebooks. So I've got okay. the, the big blue one and the little yellow one. Um, and, uh, you know, it's literally um, uh, big, big plans distilled down into little plans distilled down into kind of next actions. Um, and then um, what I'm focusing on right now. So, um, you know, I've got like a few things that I need to get done right now. When they're done, then I'll focus on the next tier of things that need to uh, need to get done. And, and the idea is to get them done by the end of this year. And I'm sure I'll get half of it done by the end sure. of this year and half of it I won't. And, you know, but, but getting half of it done is 10 times more than I perhaps would achieve if I didn't have a plan. So um, it's, uh, yeah, uh, and, and, it's, and it's great and coherent in January when you look at it and, it and you can laugh at it in September, October, when you look back at all those things that you thought were important in January. Mm -hmm. <laughs> haven't made any progress on them so that that's quite a structured approach that quite a structured approach that you take then in terms of breaking it down into into different sections that's interesting okay cool well i really yeah, appreciate yeah. your time and i know you're really busy so thank thank you for coming on um just finally if you've got any closing remarks and also where we can find you on social media and all that good stuff um that'd be really helpful but thank thank you for your time jeremy i appreciate it yeah, no, look, thank, thank, yeah, thank, thanks for inviting me along. It's been really uh, yeah, good fun just to uh, chat about some different stuff uh, other than uh, Power Rangers and um, Paw Patrol, which is the current topic <laughs> of conversation um, downstairs. Um, so the, um, uh, look, if people, um, if you want to, I've got a, a URL, www.godo.deals. If you go to godo.deals, you can order a copy of the book that, that uh, you've got, and um, it comes with that 21-day free email course, so you can follow along uh, and, and learn the basics basically to so get a, an understanding is this something you want to pursue or it's not for you i think that's a pretty good uh, way for people to find uh, find out um social media we have the harbor club youtube channel there's loads of content on there um yeah. linkedin is jeremy harbor um instagram is harbor.jeremy which is a bit more sort of lifestyle -y. um and twitter is jeremy j harbor um if you use any of those kind of platforms i'm also on clubhouse from time to time um, okay. if anyone's using uh, that um, look me up on uh, look me up on there 
Um, so uh, yeah, uh, look forward to um, yeah chatting deals with anyone that wants to talk about my favourite topic. Really. Yeah. Good. Well, congratulations on the success so far, and I'll you know continue to keep my BDI on what's going on. You know, as 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 you continue to grow the uh, organisations you have. But yeah, thank, thanks for coming on, Jeremy. I appreciate your time. Fantastic. Thank you. Take care. Thanks for listening to The Growth Show with Matt Lindsay. Please like our podcast and subscribe today.